powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hi, hey, hello. Welcome to everyone. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for that amazing welcome. Thank you. Sit down, please. Thank you. Thank you. I do love my virtual audience. Welcome to another fantastic episode of The Derek Duvall Show. And this episode is especially special. Oh, I love that. Especially special. As we are celebrating our milestone 50th episode. I can't believe it. 50. <laughs> Who would have thought it, man? Oh, man. 50, 5 So what's been going on with me, you might ask? Well... Good news, our side project that me and my wife are working on is going amazing. And we're having a great time working together and learning what makes each other tick. It's been a lot of fun so far. And if you haven't checked it out, I invite you to go to DerekDuvallShow.com and listen to a few of the episodes we have put out so far. Also on Saturday night, just now, night before last, me and Mrs. Duvall went out and saw the hilarious comedy icon, John Lovitz, do his stand-up. What a fun night. He was absolutely hilarious. A little bit of a serious note here. I put the word out in the parish that I am taking a month-long vacation in May from interviewing guests as old Derek needs some time to recharge the batteries. Doing five to six interviews a week plus production can get very burdensome and can lead to burnout, and you, my listeners, do not deserve a half-assed episode. So we'll still be sticking to our normal release schedule, but we will resume interviewing guests in June. We have got some great episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks, so be on the lookout for those. So, welcome to episode 50. We are delighted to have on the show a true icon. We have on the show the amazing and legendary animator of some of the most iconic cartoons of all time, including Scooby-Doo, Super Friends, and of course, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. That's right, folks. We have Tom Cook on the show he has got stories and tales galore, so let's get right on into it. Duval Nation, rise to your feet, and welcome to the show, the legend himself, Mr. Tom Cook. Tom, good evening. Welcome to the show. So I like to start my interviews with the same question, reflecting these insane times we live in. Uh, how's it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I mean, it's... It's been tricky, but mainly because all of the Comic-Cons I was scheduled to do all canceled. So that made it tough. Once they finally started coming back at the beginning of this year, uh, it was mainly in the South. So, yeah, so I started, I did one like in Arkansas and Florida and Texas and a few places like that. And then finally, uh, one opened up in New Jersey. I was a little shocked that that went as smoothly as it did. I thought it would be kind of a pain in the neck with all the COVID rules, but uh, they got permission to run this thing and it worked. So, mm, nice. so now I've been full back, you know, back full blast doing them. In fact, I did like nine cons in a row because they all, the ones that had canceled, 
rescheduled for later in the year. So I ended up, you know, just busy, busy, busy. It's always best to start at the beginning. Uh, where were you born and what was it like growing up? Yeah, I was born near Long Island, New York, a little town called Silver Creek, New York, but I never really lived there. We lived in a place called Greenvale. Then when I was about three, we moved to Huntington, which is out in the center of Long Island. And I was there until I was about 16. You know, you say New York and people think of buildings and, you know, concrete, and that's completely different than I lived in Long Island. It was all trees and we had like a an acre of land and then we had about a maybe a mile or two worth of woods behind us. So it wasn't anything like what you think when you say you lived in New York. Hmm. You know, it was great. I, I loved it there. When I was 16, my dad decided we moved to Los Angeles. Uh, he was an airline pilot and uh, he got tired of flying in at like two in the morning and having to negotiate the snow in the wintertime. So we moved out to LA and that's where I ended up finishing up high school and, and graduating out there. And then, uh, you know, luckily, because that's where I ended up getting my job with uh, Hanna-Barbera. Which uh, brings me to, you know, what age did you realize you had a talent for drawing? Well, I really was drawing uh, when I was a little kid, like maybe seven to eight years old, something like that. My dad was kind of a comic book fan back when there really weren't even comic books, but they had these things called Big Little Books. And it was basically like Buck Rogers or Flash mm -hmm. Gordon, Dick Tracy. And the books were like maybe an inch and a half, two inches thick and really small, and every other page had a drawing on it. So he saved a bunch of them for me, and I had about 40 of them. And so I really got into reading Dick Tracy, especially. That was mm. one of my favorite ones. And then uh, when I was about eight years old, I, I always, you know, collected comic books, but not collected in the sense that I was taking care of them. I just would buy them and read them and stick them in a drawer. And then in 1961, when uh, Marvel started, uh, I got my first issue of uh, Spider-Man number one. And that's kind of what changed my life, is I love Spider-Man so much, and I started drawing, you know, Spider-Man. You've got your hands on an Amazing Fantasy 15? Uh, I mean, I did later on, but at first, uh, the first issue I saw was number four. Mm-hmm. And it was really my neighbor had it with him when we went out in the backyard to camp out and we were reading comics with, by flashlight. And he pulls out this Spider-Man number four and I go, wow, what the heck is that? And he says, well, it's a new company that just started. And I ended up writing to Marvel asking if they had any back issues and they did. So I bought a bunch of back issues for some of the issues that I missed. But the Amazing Fantasy 15, they didn't have one. So I ended up buying one of those like in the early 70s for like 150 bucks. <laughs> that's, that's insane. That's awesome. You know, you earlier you mentioned Dick Tracy. That is something I wish would make a comeback. I don't know if it would work in this, you know, in the, in the period we live in now, but it was just such a great comic uh, when I was growing up. And of course, you know, there was the Warren Beatty film as well. But yeah, Dick yeah, Tracy. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, one of my dad's favorites. And uh, so he had a number of those. We probably had about eight big little books of Dick Tracy. You know, it was the whole idea of having a whole series of bad guys that he fought against. So it was almost like Batman fighting against the Joker or the Riddler or, but, uh, so yeah, so I always liked Dick Tracy, but, you know, the problem now is that the whole detective thing, it just doesn't really fit the same, same way it did back then, you know, I mean, having that, that wristwatch that you could actually use as like a walkie talkie. And now, I mean, no big deal. You know, everybody has one of those. 
So do you remember your very first drawings? You know, I used to take my Spider-Man comic and find a good pose of Spider-Man, and then I would copy what Steve Ditko did and, you know, just look at it and try to use the, uh, you know, size comparison and make sure that I would always draw it bigger because they were always very small in the comic book. Mm-hmm. And uh, but to try to get the, uh, you know, the proper sizing for the different muscles and stuff, I don't even really know how old I was, maybe 12, 10 or 11 or 12. And a friend of mine who we're still friends to this day, and he still lives actually in the same house that we grew up in. He and I kind of wrote this story that was like a Marvel comic thing starring Spider-Man and Daredevil and some of our favorite characters. And I can remember I drew the cover, but I didn't do it really big. I did did it on a regular piece of art paper and uh, inked it and everything. Kind of copied the style of a Marvel comic cover. And I had that for the longest time. And it might still be around here somewhere, but I've lost track of where it is. So how hard was it for you to break into the animation business? Well, it's almost embarrassing because it was so easy. To give you an example, I never applied for the job. I never even thought of applying for the job. What happened was I was a bus driver for the Los Angeles uh, Rapid Transit District, which was the transit buses taking people back and forth to work throughout the valley in L.A. and Hollywood. I did that for about three or four years in, like, I started in 75. So this is about 77, 78. One day, it was, uh, I think it was my day off, and I went out to get the mail, and it was a bunch of junk mail. And I took the mail, and I just kind of threw it on the kitchen table, and I went over to make myself a sandwich. And I sat down, and while I'm eating the sandwich, I thought, hey, I think I'll, you know, look through through this junk mail and see if there's anything worthwhile. And there was this little pamphlet from the local college, Cal, uh, Cal State Northridge, which at that time was San Fernando Valley State College. So I looked through that pamphlet because it was the classes they were going to hold in the summer, sort of like uh, extension courses. And I stumbled upon this page that said a comic book class. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. I'd love to learn a little bit more about how comics are made and maybe, you know, participate in this comic that they were going to create in the class. And so the first day at the class, uh, the teacher told us to bring in our portfolios or any artwork we had done. So the next week, I brought in all these drawings I had of Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Doctor Doom and all the Marvel stuff that I had been doing. And uh, after the class, he kind of said, hey, Tom, can I talk to you for a minute? And I kind of thought, you know, did I do something wrong or why does he want to talk to me specifically? And he said, look, I work at Hanna-Barbera as a storyboard artist, and we're doing a show called The Super Friends, and we need people that can draw superheroes, and I really like your superhero art that you showed me. Would you be interested if I recommended you for a class that they hold at Hanna-Barbera Studios every Thursday night? It's free, and you learn some basic animation skills. And he says, sometimes they'll hire out of that class. So I said, yeah, gosh, that'd be great. So I I went down and and talked to the teacher that was going to be teaching that class and took in my portfolio again, and and they looked through it. Uh, The guy's name was Harry Love, and he looked through it, and he goes, "Uh, hold on a minute. And he got on the phone and said, hey, you got to come down and look at this. And so next thing you know, Joe Barbera comes walking in the the room. Hmm. 
And so he's looking at my portfolio and he says, you know, we would hire you right now, except we don't have any room for any more desks. Mm -hmm. So we're going to keep you in the class. And then once time comes that we're still hiring again, you'll probably be one of the ones hired. So I was in the class for about three weeks, and then they announced they were going to hire four people, and I was one of them. You know, it was like a dream job that I never even dreamed of having. I had a couple of friends send in some questions because they wanted, when I told them you were coming on the show, I, I picked a few of them. The first one I want to ask you is this, is tell us about working on Super Friends, which for those who don't know was the 70s or early 80s of what would be considered today the Justice League. Yeah, and that's actually, you know, the real reason I was hired is because he had told me that uh, they have a lot of animators at Hanna-Barbera, but a lot of them really can't draw human figures that well. They're really good at like Fred and Barney and Scooby-Doo. But when it came to, you know, actual skeletons of humans, they weren't quite as good. And that's why he was kind of pushing me uh, to take that class. So that's what they said is, that, you know, we're, we're basically hiring you because of your, your superhero art. Uh, but actually, it's funny because the first drawing I ever did was a Fred Flintstone, and I still have the cell that I had them make a cell of it. And, and so I still got the original very first drawing I ever did for them. But for me, working on Super Friends was so awesome because being this, the huge superhero fan that I was, because while I loved Marvel, I still you know really liked Justice League and Flash and Green Lantern and all those comics that DC did. And... Uh, so to get to work on, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm sitting there kind of pinching myself going, I am drawing Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, and this is going to be on TV. My drawings are going to be on TV. It's just crazy. And so it was super exciting. At the beginning, I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about animation. You know, I didn't know in-betweening, and I didn't know useful imposition. I mean, some of the things that you learn later on, and I'd only been in the class for three weeks, so I really didn't get a chance to learn much. I did, like, one in-between, and it was horrible. And But they said, we don't care because we know you draw well, and that's what we're after is you're going to sit with an animator, and you'll be his assistant. And so that's how you'll pick up how to do this job. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And actually, I didn't quit my bus driver job. Even though they hired me, I said, you know, I'm not quitting my bus driver job because that's a good job and I don't want to crash and burn in the animation industry. And about two or three weeks into it, the animator I was working with said, well, you're picking this up really fast. And then I thought, well, I think it's uh, it's safe to uh, quit my bus driver job now. So that that's when I finally quit. But uh, yeah, so like I said, just just working on those superheroes was just, uh, you know, a dream. Like I said, it, it was a dream come true, but I never even dreamed the dream because it was so ridiculous. I never would have known how to ever get a job in the animation industry if not for this luck. Is it true that the original animation studio was in an aircraft hangar? No, no. The, uh, the part about the aircraft hangar, that's part of it is because, like I told you, they were so full. Mm-hmm. They had no desk left, so they rented an airplane hangar over at Burbank Airport, mm. and that's for the first three months. That's where I worked. They were building another building right next to the main building, uh, but it wasn't done yet. They were so busy. I mean, it's late 70s. We're just, man, we were doing shows like crazy. So there were all of the ink and painters, which is probably about 100 plus people, were over in this aircraft building, 
they sent the four of us that they hired out of the class plus a few others. I think there were about maybe seven or eight of us that went over to the airplane hangar, and we had a supervisor that was over at the airplane hangar too. And we were there from because I got I got um, I got hired in December, and then by February, maybe early March is when they finally got that other building done, and I could uh, move over to the to the new building. So, what is it like to take on an iconic character like Scooby Doo? You know, it it all it happens so fast because at the same time I'm working on on Super Friends, they're still doing the new Fred and Barney show. They're doing uh, Scooby Doo. They're doing Godzilla, uh, something called the Schmoo. They had just started on the Thing, which was like the Fantastic Four thing, but it really wasn't the same character. Uh, so we had five or six different shows we were working on at the same time. So it was just you go in to pick up work, and they would just hand you whatever the next show was. And I didn't get to work on just one thing, which I would have preferred, mm-hmm. just because I wanted to get the hang of of the job. And when you're switching art styles so much, you're concentrating so much on that that you kind of can't concentrate on really getting the craft down, you know? And uh, so working on Scooby-Doo, of course, I was just ecstatic because it was... Scooby-Doo came out in 1969, so I was a senior in high school, and, and you know, this is like 11 years later or 10 years later, and I'm working on the show, so it was great. I mean, it was just so much fun, and it was a little bit of a break from the pressure of drawing the human figure, because with Scooby-Doo, you didn't have to be quite as meticulous in making things look exactly right, because the cartoons can kind of move and stretch and squash, whereas a human being doesn't stretch and squash. So and that, that was kind of my introduction to being able to animate more of a cartoony style, because I was much more into the realism of, of a human character. So when I say, by the power of Grayskull, what feelings does that conjure inside you? Well, it, it conjures up life-changing, because uh, the whole animation industry, you know, having started in 78... By 1981, there were, there were probably seven or eight TV-type studios that you could work at. And in 1981, all of the work was sent over to Japan and Korea, and all of the studios closed except for filmation. And I had been working on Thunder of the Barbarian over at Ruby Spears in 1980, and I could see the writing on the wall because they'd been threatening, you know, if we don't take a pay cut or at least stay with the same pay, they're going to send the work overseas because it's just too, they can't spend any more for artwork. And uh, the union kept insisting we had to have double the pay that we were getting. And I heard, and I don't even remember where I heard it, but kind of through the grapevine, that the head of filmation, Lou Scheimer, had said he will never send work overseas. Hmm. So I got up on the phone and I called over a friend of mine that worked at filmation and I said, Hey, are they hiring over there? And they said, yeah, they are. And so I called them up and got a job over at Filmation. And that was life-changing in the fact that that was the last studio alive since Lou never sent the work overseas. We had eight or nine years of solid work with no layoffs at the end of the year like we always experienced at Hanna-Barbera because all the shows for most of the studios were all done through ABC, CBS, and NBC. Mm Mm-hmm. So you had to sell the show to them, and then they had to pick it up or cancel it. 
So at the end of the year, when you were done with the show, you had to wait until they decided whether they were going to pick it up or if we're going to buy a new show. So from like maybe November, December, January, February, you had three or four months where you were just off. And then you had to start calling the studios to see who got a show okayed. And uh, But with Filmation, when we did He-Man, it was done as a full series. And if you want to buy it, you can buy it because it was syndicated. Mm-hmm. So NBC, CBS, and ABC had nothing to do with it anymore. So now we would just make an, uh, a series and put it up for sale in all of the small market, you know, your channel 11s and channel 13s and stuff mm-hmm. would buy it to show on their station. And He-Man was the first one like that. And so from then on, every show we did was always done in syndication so we could get away from the networks because the networks were trying to always close us down and, and get us to stop having any sort of cartoons for Saturday morning. He-Man and the Master Universe ran for two years, a uh, big part of my childhood and Correct. I'm sure millions of others. When yep. you started, did you have any idea it would become the phenomenon that it ended up being? No, not a clue. In fact, when they told us we were going to do this show called He-Man, I said, He-Man? That's what you call some guy that works out too much, and it's kind of a put-down. <laughs> you know. Or I remember back, if you ever watched The Little Rascals, they had a He-Man women's haters club. Uh, that Alfalfa and those guys to, you know, they could get a club together without any women allowed or any girls allowed. And uh, so that's my take on He-Man. It was just kind of a silly name. But then, you know, when the toys, the toys were already done, but when they came out and they were selling like hotcakes and, uh, you know, instead of doing 13 episodes a season, which was the normal Saturday morning, you know, schedule, uh, we were doing five days a week. It was Monday through Friday. So we had 60 episodes to do in a year. And a year is only 52 weeks. So that means we had to do more than an episode a week. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Scooby-Doo, you got 13 episodes. Heck, you've got, you know, three or four weeks each to be able to do those. It made it so we were busy as heck, which was great. Uh, because now, like I said, uh, it was really difficult to make ends meet because even though you made good money while you were working, you had to save it up for when you were laid off because you still have to pay rent for those four months when you're not working. Right. So now suddenly I was working, you know, around, you know, week after week after week with no layoffs. It really made a huge difference in my whole lifestyle, which was what my argument was about not wanting a raise. I said, I don't want more a raise. I want more work. You know, work it out so that we can work those three or four months instead of being laid off, and that will be my raise. I'll have four more months of pay. You know, they just poo-pooed me. And then, of course, they closed the studio, so. This is a fan question that comes in. Skeletor remains, along with Megatron from Transformers, one of the most iconic animation villains of all time. What was it like to draw him? Well, I mean, it was great. And then, of course, getting to know Alan Oppenheimer, who is the voice of Skeletor, uh, has been awesome too. You know, we've done a bunch of comic cons together, and uh, it's always great because I'll just draw a bunch of Skeletors, and then you know, people come by my drawing, I'll sign the drawing, and then he'll sign the drawing, and you've got a really nice collectible with both our signatures on it, as opposed to coming up and he's just got a print, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, Skeletor is probably as popular as He-Man. I mean, it's it's one of the 
those are the two main commissions I get asked to do and and love it. You know, I mean, it's it's a great character. And of course, they had to people always say, why did they make his voice so silly? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, this show was for little kids. So you couldn't right. have some really big, scary voice or, you know, you'd scare half the kids. It, it's one of the things later in life when they go back to watch it, they don't realize that this was written for kids. So what I wish they would do is write one for 45-year-olds and do it the same as we did it back in the old days, but just update the stories to make them more adult. And they keep just changing all the characters and all all the uh, history of the characters. And, you know, how many times have they tried this? And each time it's kind of bombed. One of the questions I want to take to is She-Ra. Do you remember the, the pitch meeting and how long did it take to create The Secret of the Sword? The pitch meeting, that's all stuff that we weren't involved in because it was all just the uh, the story guys. Uh, I don't even know if layout artists were in it, you know, because it was really they had to, you know, hammer out the idea of his sister and, and it was going to be a different planet and the storyline. And uh, that had nothing to do with an animator. So I was never in on any of those uh, talks. But, uh, you know, it was so big because it was the first show for girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they had Wonder Woman, but Wonder Woman was in with a bunch of guys. This was her show. I mean, it was her and all her her friends and uh, very few males uh, on screen. So um, I know a lot of women that uh, come up to me and it's like they're crying because this really, really empowered them as little girls. And uh, it's very, very humbling uh, to know that, you know, we had some part in that. You can find it every now and again. I've seen it occasionally on DVD, but you see most of it's all on VHS still. I don't think they've ever actually converted it over. But uh, oh, I Secret of Sword? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, they have a new set out that's uh, got all those on it. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I'll have to go check those yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. You- right in my hand here, I'm holding on to a ticket. That was for the world premiere at the Man's Chinese Theater. It was just for us artists for <laughs> Filmation Studios. And they had He-Man and Skeletor out in the streets battling on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, it says, He-Man comes to television, and it's a world premiere, He-Man, the Masters of the Universe. Let's see, it was September 24th, 1983, yeah. at 8.45 a.m. at the Crawman's Chinese Theater. That's you're holding a bit of history in your hand right there. I mean, in, in certain circles, that's probably worth quite a bit. So, yeah, I've got a couple. Yeah. I've got two tickets, and, and they're both uh, really, really nice shape. Uh, you know, I collected everything. So, I mean, I've got all my model sheets still. I've got a lot of drawings from the show, um, some cells. I'm just one a, of those people. And that's my wife. She'll tell you. That's one of my questions I'm going to ask you a little later, but I'll ask it now is, uh, you know, you say you have some of your cells. I see some of the old He-Man stuff still on eBay every now and again, and um, yeah, yeah. I, I def- there's, a, there's definitely a, a there's a fandom out there that collects that stuff. I'm I'm happy to know that. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, I try to get the ones for the real Ghostbusters, but they're really hard to come by. Oh yeah, well they try to get one from the filmation of the Ghostbusters. Oh, I, I was about to ask that question next, actually. So. <laughs> Uh, actually, yeah. before I do that, though, I want to ask: Do you ever go back and watch the old He-Man episodes? Yeah, every now and then, I, I'll flip one on. Yeah. Any particular favorites? You know, I mean, I really like the Secret of the Sword. I mean, I think that was a pretty well done. You know, I wish we could have animated it a little bit better, but it was because we didn't have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've ever seen uh, Brave Star, 
we did a feature of Brave Star where they said, we want you to animate more fully. And it's much, much better than the TV show. Uh, just because, again, I mean, we had to do an episode a week. And I think we got a month to do the feature. So that was, you know, four times as much time. So now when Tex Heck is standing there, uh, his mustache is flowing in the wind instead of just sitting there still. <laughs> and I wish we could have done that with Secret of the Sword because we could have really made it, uh, you know, extra special. So you're moving on. Do you do people still ask you about the other Ghostbusters? You know, they always get that confused. I did a show just, um, I guess it was two weeks ago, and they had put on my banner uh, the real Ghostbusters. Uh, and, and I had to, they they sent me the banner and said, here's our banner. What do you think? And I said, well, it looks great, except I didn't work on that. <laughs> and uh, they, they went out and swapped it out. But uh, I did work on something called Extreme Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I directed about four or five episodes of that. And it was based on Ghostbusters, and it was one of the characters had a class, and he was teaching younger kids how to Ghostbust. And it had a um, a guy in a wheelchair, so it was one of the first uh, handicap, you know, stars of a of a show. Uh, and I also worked a little bit on Slimer. He had his own show for a while too. Okay, Deval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break. Gives you a chance to refresh your drink, do some. Nice, big stretches, and take a few nice, long, deep breaths, you know, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Turn your attention briefly to two friends of the show, and then we will be right back. X Radio X, we are two ex-college radio guys who became ex-professional radio guys who are now professionally guys in other professions. Tune in as we discuss music. Okay, right there. Let's just stop right there <laughs> for a moment. That up. We don't. All right. Let's just break down those three things. I feel like we're playing one of these things is not like the other, but the answer is every single one of these things is not like the other. That's right. The state of radio today. In the year 2525. 25. Oh, I love that you're singing. You're welcome. And anything else that pops in our heads. See, you're, you're stuck in an infinity loop if you don't take <laughs> the am. pill because then you'll never know to take it again. <laughs> it's not like hip-hop, good, marmalade, eh, spick and span, great for cleaning. He <laughs> didn't say anything. Even if we come back, things will never be the same again. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. It's the final <laughs> countdown. I don't know that I... I can't, I can't with confidence say that I want it that way because that would mean I know what that way is. X Radio X. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In today's story, Elena tried taking a magic potion which she thought would help her. Well, she found out there aren't any magic potions. And you know what? There aren't any magic drugs either. Anytime you take one from anybody but your parents or your doctor, you're taking a very big chance. You're gambling with your health, maybe even your life. Drugs don't make your problems go away. They just create more. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. 
Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Welcome back to Vol Nation. We still have lots to cover. So let's get right back to our interview with the legendary animator himself, Mr. Tom Cook. So what do you remember from the closing of Filmation? Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was uh, it was February 3rd, and I call that the day the animation died. And the reason I do that is because on February 3rd in 1959, Buddy Holly was killed, and that's the day the music died. So it happened right. to be the same day. Hmm. But uh, I came into work, and there were rumors that there was a company about to buy Filmation. Because uh, Westinghouse is the owner of Filmation, and Westinghouse needed some cash. So the easiest thing to do is to sell one of your assets and get a bunch of cash for it, and then it helps your company. So also, at the same time, there was a new law going to be signed into uh, existence on Monday, the following Monday. This was a Friday that we went in. And the bill that was being signed for Monday was that any company that lays off more than a hundred people had to pay them. I think it was something like two months pay. And I thought, man, if they lay us off on Monday, that's going to be a thousand people getting two months pay. And there's no way anybody buying this company is going to take that chance. So I told the guys, I said, I'm afraid they're going to close us today. And they were all poo-pooing. No, no, no. We're going to be, you know, we're working on a new series. You know, we've got two shows that we're working on. You know, why would they do that? And, you know, came into work, working a couple hours. And then we heard that there was going to be an all-company meeting up in the cafeteria. Well, that's a red flag. We never had all-company meetings. So walked in there and Lou got up and he was real emotional. And he said, guys, I I hate to tell you this, but we're going to have to close the studio. The people that bought the studio is L'Oreal, the makeup company. And although they promised us that they wouldn't close it, they've reneged on that promise. So I did everything I could to try to keep this place open. And we gave him a standing ovation because he really was. I mean, he was... (laughs) He could have made a bazillion dollars if he had just sent the work overseas like everybody else. Mm-hmm. But he he was, you know, true to the Americans and said, nope, we're doing this here. And now Westinghouse pulled the rug out from under him. So his company, uh, which he started, is now going to be sold off to a makeup company. And all they were interested in was getting our different series so they could put out VHSs for, of them. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, we basically, after he made that announcement, we kind of, you know, he talked a little bit more to us and told us how much we meant to him and stuff. And and so finally, when it was over, we just had to go pack our desks up and, uh, and go home. And uh, then they announced that they were going to be selling all of equipment. So I went and bought my He-Man desk and a shelving unit and a, a light that I use. So I've got that here in my studio as well. Yes, it was, it was really bad because there was nowhere else to work. So we thought, that's it. My career is over. And this is like 89. And uh, a friend of mine uh, that was in my room that we worked together on He-Man, we went over to um, MTM Studios, which was a live action studio. 
uh, we knew somebody that worked over there just as like a sweeper, you know, just sweeping and, and cleaning things. We needed a job. So we said, let's go over and see him and see if we can get a job over at MTM Studios. And maybe if we get the job, we can work our way up, you know, because we're not stupid. So hopefully we'll get some ears and maybe we'll, we can become camera operators or, you know, even assistant camera operators, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we went over to MTM and we noticed that there was a gate. But then at lunchtime, everybody was just walking through the gate and nobody was showing a badge or anything. So we went and got some paper sacks and went walking onto the studio as if we were carrying our lunches. And we got by them. And as we're walking down the main street there, there's that friend of ours that we want to go see. And he came running up to us. He goes, hey, I didn't know you guys worked here. He said, no, we don't work here. We're trying to see if we can get a job here. And he said, oh, I thought you were working over at the animation studio over there across the street. And we kind of looked at each other like, what? And he says, yeah, that building right there is an animation studio. So we went over there. And the next day I was working on Roger Rabbit. (laughs) So, I mean, talk about luck again, you know? Yeah. Roger Rabbit. Wow. I haven't heard that name in a while. It was a, a it was a studio called Bear Animation, B-A-E-R, and Dale Bear was one of the top animators at Disney, and he broke away and started his own company, and he had such a great reputation with Disney that they would let him work on Disney products, because Disney never let anything go out of their studio. Right. So that that's why I got to work on Prince and the Pauper and uh, the Roger Rabbit, and then also we did a bunch of commercials featuring a lot of the Disney characters. Mm. There's a whole Chevy Chevy commercials that we did kind of Roger Rabbit like where it was the Disney characters were in a live action where the car would pull up and the door would open and then we'd have to animate the character opening the door just kind of like Roger Rabbit. So that brings me to the next question since we're talking about Disney is that animation has changed drastically since the 80s. Are you amazed or perplexed at what Pixar is able to do now? Man, a bit of both because as luck had it, I ended up moving in 1990, once the studios closed, I moved up to Seattle and I ended up getting a job at Microsoft and Microsoft had just come up with, uh, actually, I think they bought uh, one of the first three programs for a computer called Soft Image. And this was like 1995 and it was like, well, what are we going to do with this? We don't even have any animators that work here. So I raised my hand saying, well, I actually am an animator. And so they send me down to LA for two weeks to learn how to use this program so that I could teach all the people at at Microsoft how to use it for their video games that they were doing. And so that's how I kind of got involved with the 3D. But as to your question, the difficulty with the way it is now is that there are a whole lot of people that can't draw who are now animators. And there's a whole lot of people that were great animators and could really draw that can't be animators because they don't know how to use a computer. Hmm. That happened to most of my friends because they were in their 60s when Disney switched completely over to uh, 3D. Mm -hmm. I warned them. I told them, you know, five years ahead of time, I said, guys, you got to learn how to use the computer or you're going to be out of a job. And nobody listened. And they all got laid off and uh, never never worked in animation again because they just couldn't they couldn't do it the problem i see with the 3d stuff is that everything looks the same now 
Um, it used to be you could look at a Disney film and say, okay, Disney did this. Mm-hmm. But it's impossible now. All the characters look the same because they all use the basic 3D bodies and they just change hairstyles. I mean, if you notice any of the kids, it's really hard to tell what movie it is because the kids all look the same. This is where it's so much better is now you can animate something and check it immediately instead of having to take it over to the video department and have them shoot it. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't look right. And you got to go back and fix it. Now you can look at it right away, right on your own computer. So you don't even have to go anywhere to check it. Just run it and go, okay, no, his arms moving too fast. You slow the arm down, you know, whatever the problem you find, you can fix it really quickly. Plus, if you've got a really weird angle, like, you know, sometimes you get an angle where there's a camera up above the character and they're walking. It's really hard to animate and draw something that's that extreme perspective. Well, now you just take a, a walk cycle that you've done and move the camera to above them. And that same walk is going to work for that, for that. So you really only have to have the character walk once. And then you can use that every time the character walks somewhere, just change the camera angle mm-hmm. instead of having to redraw it over and over and over. So that's a huge plus. So what about things like motion capture and stuff like that? Like uh, Andy Serkis did for Gollum and Lord of the Rings. Is that well, motion capture? Unfortunately, it captures realistically whatever's being motion captured. Animation the whole idea for animation is to make it look bigger and better than real live action. Mm-hmm. That's why when someone takes off, you know, flying in animation, you could just anticipate the crap out of it and have him take off like a shot. No human can do that. Right. So you always have to take whatever's motion captured and plus it to make it look better. It looked real. But who wants something to look real? You want it to look spectacular. I'm sure you by now you've heard there's a new He-Man series on Netflix. Um, have you? Yeah, checked... I've watched. I watched the two. Yeah. What did you think of it? Yeah. You know, it's the same old thing. They they've just changed too much. Uh, they've kept it a little closer, so it's not quite as bad as the ones in the past. But what I don't like is Tila is now, instead of being this wonderful, sweet woman that He-Man was in love with, is now kind of this punk with one half of her head shaved. She looks like a man, and she's a real witch. So that's a complete change from what she was. And I always have difficulties with this because they're on Eternia. They're not on Earth. So why would she cut her hair like people on Earth? Why why would there be difficulties on Eternia that are exactly the same as the problems we have here on Earth. The idea of a cartoon is fantasy. Come up with your own ideas as to what the problems may be on Eternia. But don't just build in the same old crap we've been fed for the last 35, 40 years. And that's what I don't like about it. You know, it's just a little too cliche for what they're doing today and not enough of a real good storyline that's real inventive. So minus comic book conventions are you officially retired oh yeah yeah i i really haven't done anything in animation since uh i directed some episodes of king of the hill like one of the simpsons and a few other things but it was pretty much probably late 90s early 2000s 
and then it was uh i had to go back out and just find a job i i worked as a a website designer for a golf club company hmm. you know i did that for about six years and then ended up working for ally bank as a customer service rep on the phone learned a lot about banking so that was actually a pretty nice job somebody had uh mentioned um i was just at a show a comic book show but i was just selling comic books because i had this huge collection that i collected you know five of everything so I was at the show making some money. Uh, I was selling some Scooby-Doo cells and somebody came over and said, where'd you get these cells? And so I told him what I did. And, and next thing you know, he says, hey, I've got a comic store. You want to come down and, and do some autographing? And I said, hey, nobody's going to come. He did a great job of you know, advertising it. And uh, the Seattle Times actually came out to my house and did an article about me. Wow. <laughs> and, and the line was down the, down the road of people coming to get my autograph. How does that make you feel when you hear that? I mean, I, I can't even imagine someone, you know, waiting in line for half a block to see me. This is how it makes me feel. It's because, like I said, my initial instinct was, and that's ridiculous. Nobody is going to come. I, I really told the guys, you're just wasting your money. And I was completely wrong, thank goodness. But when people were coming in, I realized, being a fan myself, when I got to meet Jack Kirby for the first time at this little bookstore, that he was doing his signing at. I mean, I raced over there and stood in line to meet Jack Kirby. Well, what's the difference between Jack Kirby and myself? Well, a whole lot. But still, I was kind of the Jack Kirby of that era as far as working on things that kids liked. Just like Jack Kirby worked on the comic books that I loved, I worked on all these cartoons that they loved. So I can understand why someone wants your autograph because i'm sure jack kirby was thinking the same thing why does anybody want my autograph i just draw comic books but it's just something that happens with people when you're in that type of business so that's why i can understand it but it's still really weird being on the other side of the table being the guy that wants my autograph and then it's like can i get a photo with you good god why do you want a photo with me you know you know, I'm not like a movie star. I'm just an old guy now. But I understand that as well because I got my photo with Jack Curry. Uh, you know? Yeah. So I get it. So as we wind down, what's the best way for my listeners to follow you online? Oh man. Well, I you know, it's so frustrating because I had a website up where you could buy things and you could, you know, ask for commissions and it was done in front page a long time ago, and they stopped supporting front page. So now I have to redo the whole thing. And I mean, it was huge. I'm going to do it at some point. The address for it was uh, www.80sanimator.com. So 80sanimator.com. Hopefully, before the middle of next year, I should have this all done. I've, I got to start working on it in January. Uh, I'm just too busy till the end of the year. But that's someplace they can look. But if they're interested in a commission or anything like that, if you just email me at 80sanimator at gmail.com, again, the 80s animator, they can uh, check that out. Or I'm on Facebook. If you just put in Tom Cook Animator, I usually pop up and then you can ask to be friended. And on there, I usually tell people where I'm, you know, what I'm, I'm Comic Cons I'm going to and you know, if I'm making a store appearance somewhere hmm. uh, so they can kind of keep track of me that way. 
That's good. But uh, I hope to get that, you know, I really need this website up because I've had so many people that want to buy stuff that they don't have the money at the cons and they want to pick it up later. Right. Makes sense. And I said, well, you could still, you could still email me, but now you've got the problem of if you want a signed print, I've got 80 prints. Which one do you want? I've got to show you pictures of them. It's just a hassle instead of just listing them on my website and you choose. So um, I will do that at some point. Well, Tom, thanks, man, taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real treat. And I, I'm not going to lie to you. I've learned a hell of a lot today. Awesome. I All appreciate right. uh, you asking me on. It's always fun to uh, discuss this stuff. And and like I said, I I still am wondering why you want to interview me. But like I said, I understand it because uh, I work on so many great shows. Yeah. And that's really the draw here, not me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I really appreciate uh, I really appreciate the fans and, and you being one of them. So it's, it's really cool. My pleasure. My pleasure. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 50 of the Doug Duvall Show. It's been one hell of a ride so far, wouldn't you say? Anyway, I want to thank Tom Cook for being so generous with his time. This was definitely a time capsule kind of episode. I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. Man, I'll tell you what, I've been sitting here thinking about it. 50 episodes. I remember the first episode we released in September of 2020, in the height of the early days of the pandemic, and it has become this juggernaut program. Uh, the whole purpose of the Dark Duval Show was to build the Tonight Show for those who are not Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt, or Scarlett Johansson. The people who come on my show are truly remarkable people, and they deserve that same attention. So here's to another 50 incredible episodes to come. I hope you will continue to join me for this incredible ride we are on, and we'll be back next week with another fantastic episode, so please stay tuned. Uh, before we leave, I want to thank my production team for being so awesome and keeping my voiceovers fresh, my website and social media is intact. You are all awesome. Congratulations on this 50 milestone. On that note, we'll say goodbye to you. Nusta, God bless, and see you very soon, planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.